Please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We can think of the exodus from Egypt as a kind of resurrection from the dead for the people of Israel. Uh, Perhaps more to the point in this chapter, their deliverance from slavery. Those two images, resurrection and freedom from bondage, are key themes in Romans 6 today. And we want to hear how that deliverance from slavery in Egypt leads to the commands of God and a new kind of life for the people of God because of their deliverance. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us 
if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Okay, let's turn now to Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. You may be seated. When was the last time, I wonder, that you thought about the day that you were baptized? Think about what you know about that day right now. Notice I don't say what you remember about it, because many of you don't remember the day of your baptism. But hopefully you have been told the story. I hope you know where it was. I hope... You know who it was that baptized you. But even if you don't, whatever the details may be, um, regardless of how much you, you know about those details, this fact remains. If you were once baptized, then you are today a baptized person. That sacramental 
act of God through his church has marked you as with a permanent marker, with a sharpie. It's not coming out. It is something about you that will never change. The fact that you have been baptized. I wonder how often you think about that. Probably not as often as we as we should or as would be useful for us in our Christian lives. Pastors down through the years have often encouraged Christians with the phrase, remember your baptism. John Calvin said this. He said, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Not that water baptism itself gets our sins forgiven. Church has gone wrong when it's thought that the water of, of out, the outward water of baptism washes our sins away. No, but it is the way that God has pictured to us and impressed upon us his promise of our sins being washed away through the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that your baptism is an important way that God strengthens also your assurance of salvation. I'm about to quote Martin Luther here. We would differ from Martin Luther in various ways about the topic of baptism, but I think he's right on when he says this, that we must hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized. And through my baptism, God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in a covenant with me, not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and blot it out. I'm going to take this one step further, though. There's another kind of practical value to remembering your baptism. It's not only that it gives you comfort and assurance in the face of your sin. Remembering your baptism can actually help to keep you from sinning in the first place. How can I grow in holiness? What tools has God given me to walk in obedience to him? Well, one of them is you are baptized. So you get indulge in another Luther quote here when he says, the only way to drive away the devil is through faith in Christ by saying, I have been baptized. I am a Christian. Or in one of his catechisms where he says, we must regard baptism and put it to use Put it to use in such a way that we may draw strength and comfort from it when our sins or conscience oppress us and say, but I am baptized. Why do I say all of this? Well, in our passage today, baptism becomes, for Paul, a kind of entry point, a way into this discussion about why sinning against God is so out of tune with the gospel of grace, with the truth of what God has done for us in Christ, and who we therefore are as people saved by Christ. And so it's where we want to begin, same place Paul begins, as we take up this passage in three parts this morning. For verses 1 through 4, I'm going to use that phrase, remember your baptism. 
verses 5 through 11. I'm going to use another provocative phrase. You've already died. You've already died. Verses 12 through 14, a little more cheerful. Live like you're alive. So remember your baptism. You've already died. And live like you're alive. Okay, so in verse 1, what's happening here is Paul is continuing his train of thought from chapter 5. Once again, he's, as he so often does, he's answering a, a possible objection to what he's been teaching so far about justification by faith in Christ. Remember that Adam brought sin into the world, resulting in condemnation for all mankind, deserving the just penalty of death. Remember from last week, that banner. In Adam, sin, condemnation, death. Then Christ came, and he lived a life of perfect righteousness, offered on the cross a righteous sacrifice for sinners, providing justification and life for those who will receive it from him by faith. I could go back over all that and explain what it means. That was last time. But at the end of the chapter, he explains, um, clarifies that, okay, yes, when God gave Israel the law through Moses, that created all kinds of new opportunities for sinners to sin. All kinds of new opportunities for transgression. Those lines in the sand. God drew all these lines in the sand through Moses, giving sinners that many more opportunities to stick our toes across and say, no, we're not going to obey that one either. But, he also says that when those sins increased, more and more transgressions, that didn't overpower God's ability to save sinners. Rather, as those sins increased, grace abounded all the more because God's grace is more powerful than our sin. Here at the beginning of chapter 6, then, Paul is imagining somebody kind of coming back to him after that statement and saying, well, wait a second, Paul. Are you saying... That sin is, well, if sin's an opportunity for God's grace to get bigger or to, to become more apparent, for God's grace to abound, then are you saying that sin is actually kind of in a roundabout, backwards way, a good thing? Because the more sin, the more grace. It kind of maximizes the opportunity for God's grace to shine. So, hey, I guess uh, maybe we should really sin it up so that so that God's grace can abound that much more. And it's an obviously absurd thought, right? Although it is possibly the kind of thing that people who, who disagreed with Paul might have accused him of teaching. And this is actually a, a perennial objection to the gospel of free grace, the free gift of salvation apart from any works that we do that is solely the free gift of God based on Christ's righteousness. This is an objection that came up in Paul's day, and it's come up all the way through church history. Augustine, the Reformation, you name it. People have always come back with, well, wait a second. Won't that make people sin more 
because now they can get away with it. And now you're even telling them that that means that God's grace will abound all the more so. They think, well, if I sin, that's a good thing, more grace. And to that whole category of objections, Paul responds with this very strong statement of denial. He says, by no means, also translated, may it never be, or certainly not, or you could say, no way, Jose. Not going to happen. And of course, it's probably not surprising to anybody. Of course, that's not what Paul thinks. Rhetorically, Paul has raised kind of this absurd idea. But now he has to explain, well, why not? Seems maybe like that's an implication of what you're teaching, Paul. Explain to us why we don't have to go there, why what you're teaching doesn't lead us to that absurd place. So it's, it's not surprising that Paul's going to deny that. But what may surprise you is where Paul decides to go first to combat that whole notion. Where, where Paul goes to explain why free grace doesn't lead to more sin. And that surprising place that he goes first is to the sacrament of baptism. Sacrament of baptism. Do you not know, he says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, Paul's going to unpack those ideas of death and resurrection in what follows, and we're going to explain them more later on too. Um, Those inward realities that baptism symbolizes. Um, but it's, it's true that, that, that whole, this whole notion that we're going to get to of, of dying and rising with Christ can be a little tricky to understand. To some people, it may feel difficult because it's a little abstract. Christ's death and resurrection were so long ago and far away, and you're saying that I've died somehow and risen in connection with Christ. And that's true, it's a glorious aspect of the gospel, but there's no doubt that it can be a little difficult, especially the first time you, you hear it. And so I think that it's useful to start where Paul starts. What I don't want us to miss in these first four verses is how concrete, how tangible and solid and physically wet Paul makes this whole idea by connecting it with baptism. This is one of the reasons that God gave to us baptism. It's with real water that gets you really wet so that he's showing you in in a different way this permanence of the change that comes to you through Christ in a way that um, the pure verbal statement of these things, it complements the verbal statement of these things later on. Okay, so let's talk about this baptism idea. Why can't you just keep sinning as a Christian? Paul's first answer is, well, it's because you've been baptized. And baptism is this outward picture that symbolizes and ratifies the inward spiritual connection between you and Christ. It represents this relationship between a Christian and his Savior, where what happened to Jesus is counted as though it happened to you. The point here is that your baptism says that about you. So baptism says one thing about you. Sinning would say the opposite. It is dissonant 
It is out of harmony. There is a grating clash there that ought to seem absolutely intolerable to us. We gotta just, I just think I can't stand. I couldn't stand to have those things coming together in my life because they grate like fingernails on a chalkboard. They don't belong together. So I want to ask you, when you face temptation to sin, your words, your thoughts, your actions, how might things turn out differently? How might you make a different set of choices? How might you have a different set of reactions or instincts? If you could think in that moment of temptation about the wetness of the water, the the weightiness of the triune name of God spoken over you, setting you apart visibly and publicly and concretely and physically even to a different kind of life and establishing for all to see that you are not your own person. You are not at your own disposal. You have been baptized. Now, there are all kinds of qualifications that I could make here and that in various contexts we should make about how the outward act of water baptism is not what forges or produces that inward relationship between you and Christ. The Holy Spirit who does that through the gift of faith in your heart Um, I could explain how that that spiritual reality of conversion and that living faith bond with Jesus, sometimes that starts before, sometimes after water baptism. They don't necessarily happen at the same time. That's all true. It's all very important. Baptism is not some magical ritual that guarantees a spiritual result. It's not a work that we can do to guarantee or kind of tap into the grace of God. I'm not saying that. Paul doesn't say that. But what he is saying, we don't want, <coughs> excuse me, we don't want what he is saying to die the death of a thousand qualifications because what he is saying is that baptism matters practically for your Christian life. Baptism marks you, again, with, as with a permanent marker all over your forehead saying, property of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Dead and alive again in Christ. And that means that if you've been baptized, you cannot just go out and live any way you please. And that's good news for you, because then when the moment of temptation comes, that defining fact of your life, that wet, wet water that was once placed upon you is a gift from God for you in that moment to remind you, as preachers like to say, of who you are and whose you are. Now, so far I've been speaking in pretty general terms about this connection that baptism represents between you and Jesus. But now I want to get into that a little bit more, into this whole idea of death and resurrection that's so important to Paul in this passage. What does Paul mean, after all, when he says that we have been united with Jesus in a death like his? Obviously, we're all living and breathing, we ate breakfast this morning. I think, I think I'm still alive. What does this mean? Well, to help us through this next section, I want to um, remind you of a kind of big idea that runs all through Paul's letters that 
will often refer to with the phrase, union with Christ. Union with Christ. And the idea is that when a person trusts in Christ, a person believes the gospel promises, embraces Christ as the Savior. We don't merely get blessings kind of dispensed to us from God at that point. As though, okay, you believed the right thing, so now this heavenly dispensary of grace is going to give you the, the things that you need. You don't want to think of it that way. When a person trusts in Christ, what happens is the Holy Spirit brings together sinner and Savior in a close spiritual bond that Paul frequently describes as being in Christ. This is how we come to receive the blessings that Jesus' life and death and resurrection achieved for us. We receive them from Christ himself because the Holy Spirit has created this life-giving connection between us, this spiritual, faith-wrought union with Christ. It's not just that we get something from Jesus as though he stands there and hands it over like a transaction. It's that the life history of Jesus comes to count for us. Jesus' perfect life comes to count for us in God's sight as though we ourselves had lived it, that life of perfect obedience. Jesus' death on the cross satisfies God's justice against our sin because through that union, it's as though we had hung there on the cross with him, as though we had borne that penalty ourselves. It's as though in God's estimation, when Jesus died, you died. You have been united with him in a death like his. And that means, therefore, in your own experience as you go through life, what that means is that your old self, that is to say, you apart from Christ, you stuck in guilt and under the power of your sin, that old self was crucified with Jesus and died when he died. That's not you anymore. It's gone. It's buried. Those things that used to be true of you aren't true anymore because there's been this change in the core of your being, so fundamental, so basic, that it's like one life has ended and another has begun. In fact, you could delete the word like. It's not just like that. That is what has happened. One life has ended indeed and another has begun. It is hard to think of anything in human experience more decisive than death. Whatever Miracle Max might say, there's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either alive or you're all dead. It's this decisive change. Christ died not only to accomplish something decisive in our place, that's the atonement, Sacrifice for our sins as our representative. That, that's true. We can never lose sight of that. The cross is not about less than that, but it is also about something more. Christ died also to accomplish something in us, in our lives, to bring about within us a break with sin. Paul 
Paul says that the goal was that our body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, what death does, think about just in everyday life, death severs a person from life in this world. The dead no longer share with us the experiences of the living. When you're united to Christ, then you are severed from a life of sin. You are severed once and for all from a life dominated and controlled by sin. For, verse 7, one who has died has been set free from sin. The flip side of this, of course, this isn't all just about death. It's also about resurrection. We're also impacted by the resurrection of Christ. Christ's resurrection from the dead not only guarantees for us this this promise of future eternal life that's going to last forever, which is wonderful, wonderful blessing. Uh, Think about that eternal inheritance that we have and the life that will never end in the presence of God. But see, that's not all. Through our union with Christ, we experience now, already in our living present, the power of his resurrection life, just as surely as we have died in our union with Christ, with his cross. We've also been raised from the dead in the same way. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, right? Verse 9, after the resurrection, Jesus is not going to ever die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's not subject to that world system that's under the control of death and all of the effects of sin. There's... Not a repeated cycle that Christ has to go through over and over. In that sense, it's not like the changing of the seasons every year. Like so many pagan religions have these cycles or this this circle of life where, well, death is just a way that the natural cycle feeds new life. And there's just this, this circle of death and renewal that characterizes pagan religion and New Age thinking and Eastern religion today and a lot of the ways that just your average everyday American thinks about matters of life and death, but not Christianity. No, not the work of Christ. Christ's work moves in a line, a line of history towards a definite end of life everlasting for himself and his people. It doesn't move in a circle. It moves in this single direction through death and then beyond death, defeating death, and ending with a life that will never end. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. When it says that he died to sin, of course, it doesn't mean that he had sin of his own that he needed to get rid of. He died, for for one thing, bearing the penalty for our sin. So it was our sin that he died to. And more than that, he died to kind of complete his full experience of this sin-filled world under the curse. He lived through the sin-filled world under the curse and then died to it, bringing about a decisive break with it and a defeat of it in his death. Jesus endured sin's full effect all the way to the max. But now that suffering is done. It is past. It is entirely in the rearview mirror for Jesus. Jesus endured fully both life and death in this world under curse. See, what happened when Jesus rose from the dead is he, there came to birth in the resurrection of Jesus a new world, a new 
creation. A new kind of life. The Bible sometimes calls the age to come. A new kind of life that Jesus now shares. Now welcomes us into for those who are united to him. So we now get to experience the power of that new creation, the power of that new resurrection life of Jesus. And so, verse 11 says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, there's this decisive change that's taken place for us as Christians. Not just a decisive break with sin, but this decisive kindling of a new kind of living. It's like the lighting of a match or the the flipping of a switch. It's the resurrection life of Jesus has come on in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and our union with Christ. Now, once again, I've gotten kind of into some deep waters here, but I want to assure you at this moment, if you're starting to get lost, that this has a major practical payoff for the Christian life. I want to ask you, can you imagine... The difference that it could make in your life, if you could get firmly into your imagination this this weird idea, I have already died. I have already died. Now you say, that's crazy. Again, here I'm breathing, eating, walking around. Of course you are. But the change that you have experienced from knowing Christ is that drastic, not an ounce less It means that your old self, dominated and controlled by sin, has died. You are not dominated and controlled by sin anymore. But you see, it's not like nothing has taken its place. That old way of living, now in Christ's tomb permanently, never to come out again, has been replaced by a new kind of life. The resurrection life of Jesus powerfully at work within you to give you this new energy, this new set of priorities, this new set of values, a new purpose for your life. And that's the way we have to learn to think of ourselves. Paul is saying, consider yourselves this way. When you think about yourself, you've got to think, in union with my Savior, I have died and I've risen again. When Jesus died, I died. And when Jesus rose... He raised me with him, not the same as I was before. There's been a death in my life, my own. But there's also been a new birth in my life by the grace of God. Okay, well, so far, Paul has mainly kind of been stating the facts and instruct us to acknowledge those facts, to think of in this way about yourself because it's true. So, in a sense, what he's described so far is kind of a done deal. He's not telling us to die and rise with Christ. It's not something we could do anyway if he told us to. These are effects. These are things that, that follow when we trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit joins us to Jesus through faith. When you have that connection with Jesus, he shares himself with you in many respects. You don't pick and choose. It's not a la carte. If you belong to Jesus, then you share in his death and resurrection. This is just what it means to be a Christian. Nevertheless, Paul is keenly aware that the Christian life doesn't always feel that way. There are some other factors that come in we have to account for. He's keenly aware that we live the Christian life 
during a time of, it's been described as kind of overlap. The overlap of this world, this world that's so full of sin and it's under the curse. There's an overlap between this world and this, this new world that Jesus ha- came to bring, that new creation. They're overlapping right now until he comes again. A new creation has begun. That resurrection life of Jesus has come to birth within us, but we're still living in this sin-filled world under the curse. And so the, the way things will be one day is not yet the way things are now. And so in a sense, Christians live with our foot kind of in two worlds, almost like two boats. That can be an unstable feeling. We're living with the resurrection of life of Jesus inside us, but our day-to-day takes place in the same world that that old sinful self that died with Jesus, it's, it's the world of that sinful self. It's the world that self belonged to. We've died to that world, and yes, we now live decisively towards this new world, but that creates a conflict. It creates a dissonance in the Christian life. It creates a constant tension and a constant temptation. There's this drag pulling us backwards, this suction, like quicksand, sucking you back in, trying to anyway, to live as though those great changes haven't taken place. To live out a falsehood about yourself. See, throughout Paul's letters, there's this repeated tension. Here's who you are in Christ, and now here's who Christ is calling you to be, and there's a little bit of a gap there. This is true about you once and for all because you belong to Jesus who has lived and died and risen once and for all for you. But the process of working that all the way into your life and and bringing it all out of your life like it should be, that that process is sometimes arduous, something that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't always happen in a straight line of steady progress. We so often think and speak and act in a way that simply does not match. It does not accord with what is objectively true about us in Christ. We contradict it through our lives whenever we choose sin. This is why Paul so urgently exhorts us then, turns from telling us the truth up through verse 11, now to giving us a command in verses 12 to 14 when he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin doesn't reign over you. Therefore, don't let sin reign over you. Do you hear the complementary ideas there, that, that tension? You've died to sin, so don't live in sin. What kind of sense would that make? Get it? Your body of sin has been brought to nothing, but your body is still living in a sin-filled world. And as you live in this world, you're going to continue to experience that allure, that suction, that siren song of sin all around you, trying to draw you back in, trying to get you to live in ways that simply don't match who you really are. The basic message here is live like you're really alive. Live like you're alive. Don't live like you're still dead. And in a sense, it's as simple as this question, who are you going to make yourself available to? You know, throughout life, we have to 
make choices about what we're going to be available to do. Say, yes, I can, I can do that. I'll say yes to that. I'll say no to this other opportunity. And we can't say yes to everybody who might ask us to, to do something. Who are we going to make ourselves available to? Another way to put it in this context is, at whose service are you going to place yourself? Think about someone saying, I'm at your service. What does that literally mean when you're not just saying it to say it? But if you actually mean it, I'm at your service. It means you can use me to do what you need done. I want to help you accomplish it. And I'm going to willing to be your instrument, your tool to carry out your wishes. Well, Paul says, do not do that with sin. Never tell sin, I'm at your service. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You're familiar with the famous call of the prophet Isaiah where he says, To the Lord, here am I, send me. You need to understand that when you give in to temptation, when you choose to live for yourself, when you choose convenience or pleasure, over godliness and holiness, when you choose sinful speech over the restraint of your tongue, you know what you're doing. You are saying those words to sin. You are saying to sin, here am I, send me to do your bidding. We're making ourselves available to sin. You've got to imagine, you've got to understand that you are a, a tool or a weapon that is either going to be wielded by the Lord or by sin, one or the other. And Paul's saying, don't place that tool willingly in the hand of evil. Why would you do that? Present yourselves rather, (coughs) excuse me, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Remember, sin doesn't have dominion over you. Because it doesn't have dominion over Jesus. Death no longer has dominion over him, neither does sin. And because you're united to Christ, what's true of him is true of you. You do not have to obey your sinful desires. Listen, a lot of people want to tell you well, your, your sinful desires, they're really, they're really just a disease. They're, some, they're not something you do, they're something that you have. Not true. You are not controlled by them. You are not enslaved to them They are not what dominate and define your life. You do not have to be trapped by your sinful habits and thought patterns. You do not have to obey your anger. Your anger tells you, well, it just overwhelmed me. I just felt this and I just just said whatever came to my mind. I just do that kind of thing. I, I lose my temper. And almost like that's an excuse. No, you do not have to obey your anger. You don't have to. Because you're free from it in Christ. You've died to it. You know what else you don't have to obey? You don't have to obey your lust. You don't have to obey your greed. You don't have to obey your craving for for pleasure or comfort or ease. You don't have to obey your gluttony. You don't have to obey your desire to do whatever you want on the Lord's day. You don't have to obey your desire to maximize your own ease and Turn a blind eye to others who might need your help. In Christ, you have died to that whole selfish approach to life. And those things don't control you. You have a new life in Jesus. And the Lord is showing you here 
what it looks like to really live. To really live. To live like you're alive. So when you get up tomorrow, you're faced with the same old discouragements, the same old temptations, the same old pressure and drag of this life and the sin that's just steeping the world around you. Remind yourself of these things. Remind one another of these things. Don't leave this here on Sunday morning at church. Make use of this. Deploy it for your good by the grace of God. Say to yourself, to one another, to the Lord, and to the devil, I've been baptized. I've already died. And I have a new life now in Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, these things are easy to say and hard to do. But Lord, we're so thankful that it's not our power that's going to get it done, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. But Lord, you've put the right man on our side, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray you would strengthen us in him to let not sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies, but rather to live this new life that you've given to us in him. In Jesus' name, amen.